If I were to ask you, if you want to be like God, do you want to be like God? How would you answer? The way that you'd answer probably would depend on which passage of Scripture comes to mind first. It feels a little bit like a trick question, right? Because if the first passage of Scripture that comes to your mind is Satan in the Garden of Eden saying to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. If that's the first passage of Scripture that comes to your mind, you might think, no, I'm not falling for that. I'm not trying to be like God. But if, on the other hand, the first passage of Scripture that comes to mind is something like Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, or Paul in Ephesians 5.1 saying, therefore be imitators of God, in other words, be like God, then you might say, yes, of course I want to be like God. Or we could simply put it like this. Do you want to be like Jesus? Yes, if you're a Christian, right, the answer is, of course, I want to be like Jesus. Well, Jesus is God. So do you want to be like God? The point is, there's more than one way to be like God. So, At least one way to try to be like God is sinful, dangerous, right? It's the temptation that Satan threw at Eve, But there's another sense in which we are made to be like God. And we are obligated to try to be like God. One of those, again, is dangerous. And one of those is essential. And knowing the difference is important. And understanding the difference helps us understand what's going on with Jesus and the religious leaders in John chapter 5. Because what happened with Jesus is that he claimed not only to be like God, but to be God. And many of the religious leaders, they thought Jesus was just a man, like Adam, who was trying to be God in the way that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to try to be like God. That he's not God, but he's trying to take God's place. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He was not a mere man claiming to be like God or trying to be God, take God's place. He was God who became man. So when Jesus says that he's the son of God, we need to understand what he means by that. Because, you know, we have this phrase like, like father, like son. Jesus is not saying God is the Father, and I'm His Son because I'm kind of like Him. Mostly like Him. No, He's saying, God the Father, and I'm God the Son, we are both God. That's what it said in the passage of Hebrews uh, we read earlier, where it said that the Son is the exact imprint of God's nature. There is no distinction between the Father and the Son other than one's the Father and one's the Son. They are both fully, truly God. And that's what so many did not understand about Jesus at first. And honestly, many don't understand even still. So let's look together at the Gospel of John chapter 5. 
We're going to start reading in verse 19. We'll read down to verse 29. That'll be our text for the sermon this morning. And what Jesus is doing in these verses is explaining what he means when he says that he is the Son of God and that God is his Father and why that matters for how we respond to him and for what he can do for us. All right, so let's hear what Jesus says, beginning in verse 19 of John chapter 5. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now Jesus says these words... Again, to explain what he means when he calls God his father and when he refers to himself as God's son. Because he just healed a man earlier in chapter 5 who'd been an invalid for 38 years and Jesus healed him with a word and told him to get up and take his bed and go home. And some of the people there got upset at this man and said, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. You can't pick up your bed and go home, you're breaking the Sabbath. And he said, well, guess what? The guy that healed me told me to do this, so I'm listening to him, because he did for me what nobody else has been able to do. And they said, well, well, who was that then? We need to talk to him. And so eventually the man uh, tells them it was Jesus, and John tells us the reason that the Jews were so mad at Jesus we're persecuting him, we're trying to put him to death, was because he was breaking the Sabbath and because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What he said was, hey, my father is working until now and I'm working. God works on the Sabbath, so I get to work on the Sabbath. Now, if one of us said that, God does it so I can do it. We'd say, woo, watch it. Time out, right? That's blasphemy, man. Who do you think you are? And that's, what the, that's how the Jews responded to Jesus. The way we would respond to anybody else who made a claim like that. But Jesus is different. 
They were wrong to respond to Jesus that way because Jesus is not a mere man like the rest of us. He's the God-man. He's God who became man. And so he explains to them what his role is, how he's different than the rest of us, why he is uniquely not only like the Father, but equal to the Father. So notice what he says first in verse 19. He says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus says, look, I'm not a a prodigal son. I'm not a rogue son. I'm not out here doing whatever I want to do. Everything I do, I'm doing because that's what God does. I only do what the Father does, only what I see Him doing. And He says, uh, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So Jesus says, the Father and I, we're on the same team. The Father loves me. The Father reveals Himself to me. The Father shows me all that He does so that I can do like He does. And everything I do is what He does. You guys are getting upset at me because you think I'm doing something that dishonors God. But I'm doing what God does all the time. You guys are the ones who are out of sync with who God is. I'm here to show you who God is because I'm God in the flesh. All I'm doing, all you're seeing in me is what you would see if you could see what God was really up to. That's what you're seeing in me because I am the Son. Right? So Jesus is not merely imitating God's character, which is what we are called to do. Jesus is also doing the kinds of things that only God can do. So we know by instinct and intuition, right, that when God says to us through the Apostle Paul, be imitators of God, that God is not telling us to try to be omnipotent or omnipresent. Be everywhere at once, like God. We, we know that's not what he means. We also know he doesn't mean go out and raise the dead, go out and heal the sick. I can't do that. And neither can you. Only God can do that. We know that's not what he's talking about. But Jesus is not just imitating the character of God, showing the love and mercy and compassion of the Father. He's also doing the kinds of things that only the Father can do. That's why he says at the, at the end of verse 20, he says, Greater works than these will he show him, that is, will the Father show the Son, so that you may marvel. So I just healed somebody, Jesus is saying, who was an invalid for 38 years, but you guys ain't seen nothing yet. The Father is going to show me even more amazing things so that you will be amazed at Him through me. What kinds of things could Jesus possibly do that would be so much greater than what He has already done? He's already turned water into wine. He's already healed an invalid who wasn't able to... uh, you know, move on his own for decades, what else could he possibly do? Well, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. If there's one prerogative that we know belongs only to God, it's the, the right, the power, the ability to bestow or take life. He's the creator 
He creates us, he brings us into the world, and he takes us out of the world. He has the power of life and death because he alone is God. And yet Jesus says, just like God the Father can raise the dead and give them life, so can I. So can the Son. I can give life to whomever I will. It's significant then, I think, that if you look at the Gospel of John, right? there are 21 chapters in John. The midpoint of the Gospel of John is chapter 11, more or less. All right? And chapter 11 is also a turning point uh, for the Gospel of John, where uh, at the end of chapter 11, when you get into chapter 12, John focuses from chapter 12 to the end of the Gospel on the last week of Jesus' life, leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. So the whole second half of the gospel is about that last week. What happens in chapter 11, when John sort of comes to the end of Jesus' ministry as we've known it, and then shows us, sort of zooms in and, and, and slows down the pace on that last week of Jesus' life? Do you know what happens in John chapter 11? It's in John chapter 11 that Jesus stands outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. It is the most, outside of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, it is the climactic sign, the climactic miracle in the Gospel of John that is meant to demonstrate to us that Jesus himself is God in the flesh. Nobody else can summon the dead with his voice and give them life. Only God can do that. And Jesus, in full view of all the people who had uh, stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, says to them with that call to Lazarus, I have the power of life. I have the power to raise the dead because I am life. Because I am God. So Jesus is telling them, you, you haven't even seen yet all that I can do that will demonstrate to you that I am God. Healing on the Sabbath was only the beginning. Now, if Jesus is who he claims to be, what does that mean about how we should respond to him? How we should treat him. Right? The, the Jews there at the time, they're, they're not neutral towards Jesus. They're hostile towards Jesus. They're persecuting him. They're seeking to put him to death. But even being neutral is not good enough. It's not, it's not good enough to just not be opposed to Jesus. God wants more than that in the way that we respond to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 22. Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the one who's going to be sitting on the throne on judgment day, in other words. Why has God done that? Why has he given to Jesus all the authority to judge? Well, he tells us in verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. How do we honor the Father? With worship, praise, adoration, 
Right? We, we uniquely honor Him. The Bible's very clear, right? That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. He is to have our primary allegiance above everyone and everything else. We honor Him above all. And so if we say, God, how do you want us to treat Jesus? You, you say He's your Son. What does that mean? Does that mean He's like second, like under you, like almost worthy of as much honor as you, but not, not quite? What, what do you want us to do? And He says, I want you to honor my Son just like you honor me. How can God say that? God says very plainly in the Old Testament that He will not give His glory to another. Any time Israel gave any of the honor that belonged to God alone to anyone or anything else, and they did it a lot of times, right? They created all kinds of idols and followed all kinds of false gods. Any time they did that, God's response was always one of holy jealousy, of righteous anger, and also compassion, right? The desire to draw His people back. But He was never indifferent to their idolatry. He was never indifferent to them showing to some created thing the glory, the honor that belonged to Him alone. So for God to say to us, I want you to honor my son the way you honor me, is a very clear way of saying, my son is equal with me. He's God. He's not almost God. He's not mostly like God. He's worthy of the same honor that I am because He is God. I'm the Father. He's the Son. But we are both fully and truly God. And so I want you to honor my Son the way that you honor me. And not only that, but he says at the end of verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's not, there's not a sort of like generic God that you can honor without honoring Jesus. The only true God is the God that the Bible calls the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot honor the true God without honoring Jesus. This is not possible. God has sent His own beloved Son into the world to save us, to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin, to rise from the dead so that we can have eternal life with Him, resurrected, glorious life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And any response to God sending His Son to do that for us that falls short of fully trusting and honoring Jesus is also a failure to honor the Father who sent Him. You, just, you can't have it both ways. Right? You can't say, oh, I, I, I believe in God, I, I trust God, I love God, but I, I don't have anything to do with Jesus. Well, then the, the God that you think you're honoring is, is not a real God. It's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible says, you can't actually honor me unless you also honor my son. 
That's the only way. It's the only way. Jesus goes on to say, in verse 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, eternal life is tied to the Son. Who is it that receives eternal life? It's those who hear Jesus' word and believe the Father who sent him. Well, what do we need to believe about the Father who sent him? Well, how about we start with the fact that he sent him, right? What are we supposed to believe about God? That he sent his Son. I mean, that's the basic gospel message, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we hear Jesus speak and we believe what God says, and by the way, God speaks about Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, he says, from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If we hear Jesus and believe the Father, we have eternal life. But as John has already told us, whoever doesn't believe the Son does not have life. They're condemned already because they don't believe in the only Son of God. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Life, resurrected life, is dependent upon hearing the voice of Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. Now here, he's talking about spiritual resurrection and spiritual life. He's going to talk about physical resurrection later. But notice he says in verse 25, an hour is coming, that means it's, it's future, and is now here, meaning it's already begun. Right? This was something that was coming, but now it's here. What is here? The dead hear the voice of Jesus, and they live. When does that happen? How does that happen? Every time somebody turns from sin and believes in Jesus, it's a spiritual resurrection. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, right? That you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. But then what happened? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, but God made you alive with Christ. That's what salvation is. And Jesus is saying, that is tied to me. He's not saying you have to hear an audible voice, right? It's, it's not like that. It's the same thing Jesus means in John chapter 10, when he says, my sheep hear my voice, right? And they follow me. It just means you hear the word of Jesus, about Jesus, and something in you goes, that's true. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one I need. I trust Him. And if that's you, you've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. You've been spiritually raised from the dead. And Jesus did that. And only Jesus can do that. How can He do that? 
Verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. How does God have life in Himself? What does that even mean? Well, you have to think about it this way. Who gave God life? Nobody. Nothing. What does God need to live? Nobody. Nothing. You and I need a mom and a dad. We need air, food, shelter, all kinds of things for us to exist. There was a time when we didn't exist, and there will be a time when we die. We are dependent upon all kinds of things, and ultimately upon God to even be, but not God. God is dependent upon no one and nothing. He's always existed. Nothing brought him into existence. He has no parents. He has no beginning and he has no end. He has life in himself. And so does the Son. He has life in himself. He's not a creature like us, dependent on other things to exist. He's God. He doesn't need anything else or anyone else. He just is life. That's why he can raise the dead, both spiritually and physically. He goes on to say in verse 27, He has given him, that is the Father, has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Okay, now why why the shift now to Son of Man? We've been talking about Jesus as the Son of God. Now we're talking about Jesus as the Son of Man. How is that significant? To honor Jesus Christ. Rightly, We have to honor Him as both Son of God and Son of Man. Now here's what that means. As Son of God, He is truly God, fully equal to the Father, worthy of all worship and honor and praise, just like God Himself. As Son of Man, He has become like us. He took on flesh and blood. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a normal human life. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had to sleep. And he will one day sit on the throne to execute judgment as both Son of God and Son of Man. As Son of Man, he understands us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's like us. But as Son of God... He's so much greater than us. He has the authority, the right to judge, to pronounce, you are banished from the kingdom of the Father because of the fact that you didn't believe and the the way that you acted. You enter the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That's the way Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 25 about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Who is it sitting on that throne? It's Jesus separating, judging, because he is the one who has authority as both son of God and son of man. We have to recognize him as both in order to honor him rightly. Finally, Jesus says in verse 28 and 29, that it is He, the Son, who will summon all to resurrection on the last day. See, the Jews, most of them anyway, most of the Jews knew from the Old Testament that a day of bodily resurrection was coming. Job talked about it. Daniel talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. 
The Sadducees didn't believe it, but just about all the rest of the Jews, I assume, did believe it because it was a big deal that the Sadducees didn't. And so they knew that day was coming. And they knew God was the only one who could bring that day about. God was the only one who could cause people to rise from death to life. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's going to make that happen. I'm the one who's going to bring that about. Look at verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Notice he doesn't say, and is now here, because this is still future. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, everybody who's dead, in other words, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. It's not just going to be, you know, one Lazarus here, one, you know, son of a widow over here, Jesus raised from the dead. It's not just those who hear Jesus and believe and are raised spiritually. This is everybody who's dead is going to hear the voice of Jesus and come out of their tombs or their graves or wherever they are. And he says those who have done good are going to come out to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In other words, this is a universal resurrection. Not a universal salvation. Not a universal salvation, but a universal resurrection. And that's not new. Daniel talked about this in Daniel 12 when he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. Who sleeps in the dust? The dead. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. If you're asleep in the dust and now you're awake, what are you? You've been raised. You've been resurrected. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's not only believers who get bodily raised from the dead. It's everybody. Everybody. But not everybody's resurrection is going to be the same. Everybody is going to be raised, but not everybody's going to end up in the same place. Not everybody's going to have the same experience of resurrection. But even before we talk about that, let's just stop here for a moment and notice what Jesus is saying. That your physical life, which ends in your physical death, is not the end. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of your existence. That's not the end of what is going to happen to you. That's not the end of what God has planned for you. This life is not all that there is. Jesus demonstrated that once and for all when he himself rose from the dead. And the Bible says that at his return, which is what Jesus is talking about here, everyone's going to be raised from the dead. So, We need to be sure that we're ready for that day of resurrection. What is it that makes the difference between whether we're raised to the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment? That sounds like, doesn't that sound like this is like a works-based thing? You know, if you do good things, you get... The good resurrection. If you do bad things, you get the bad resurrection. That, that's kind of what it sounds like, right? Because we, we would expect Jesus to say, those who have believed, 
go to the resurrection of life, and those who have not believed to the resurrection of judgment. And he could have said that, because that's true too. But that's not how he said it. Why didn't he say it that way? Why not say it that way? Why say it this way? Well, by saying it this way, he helps correct two ways that we are prone to go wrong when we think about salvation. On the one hand, people go wrong by thinking, you know, I'm not that bad. I don't need, like, this overwhelming grace to come and save me. You know, I I just need a fair shake. I'm a decent person. If I just get a fair shake, God will understand my mistakes and everything else will be fine. And like that's all I need. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I do good things. I think on balance, if God looked at me and I could, you know, give my side of the story, he'd go, yeah, okay, you're in. Not too bad. That's not true for anybody. On the other hand, we're prone to go wrong by thinking, Salvation by grace, that's, that's great. Salvation by grace, apart from works, whew, now I know I'm forgiven, my sins are washed away, and I can do whatever I want. No worries. God doesn't care if I go to church or read the Bible or pray or love people or any of that stuff. You know, that's what you're supposed to do, but you don't have to. That's what, that's what grace is all about. No, that's not true either. Both of those are wrong. Because here's what the Bible actually says. We are saved by grace through faith apart from works so that we can then walk in good works. So that we can then do good works. Another another way to say it is this. Salvation is not by works, but our works are proof that salvation works. That makes sense? And Jesus is saying the same thing right here, right? Because earlier he said, notice in verse 24, we go back to verse 24. He said, the one who believes, right? Who hears my word and believes has eternal life and does not come into judgment. So you got belief, life, no judgment, right? Then here in verse 29 is those who do good get life. No judgment. So which one is it? Believe life, no judgment, or do good life, no judgment? Well, it's both, because if you believe, that leads to you doing good. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved by grace, God comes to dwell inside of you, He changes you, He transforms you, so that you end up doing good. It's not that your salvation is based on the good that you do, it's that the good that you do is the proof that God has saved you. It's not going to be perfect good works. Right? I mean, almost all of us, almost all the time, if we even manage to do something we feel pretty good about, right? As soon as we start to examine it closely, we're like, ah, my motives weren't great. You know, maybe I, you know. None of it is perfect. But it is real. There's real change, real transformation that happens when God saves somebody. And if you don't have that, if God hasn't changed you, He hasn't saved you. God doesn't do things by halves. God doesn't just go, yeah, you get to go to heaven, but like, I'm just going to leave you like you are. God God doesn't do it that way. He never does it that way. 
So what this means is, if we want to experience the resurrection of life, and if we don't want to experience judgment, this doesn't mean, oh my goodness, I can do and I've got, to, I've got to make a list when I get out of here of all the good things that I've got to do because I've got to bulk up that resume because I don't want to miss out on the resurrection of life. That's not what that means. What this means is, if you want to experience the resurrection of life and you don't want to experience judgment, what you need to make sure of is not that you've got a list of works that you're working on. What you need to make sure of is that you're listening to Jesus. If you are listening to His voice, if you are believing what He says in His Word, you're going to do the good works. You're going to walk in the way that He wants you to. Not all the time, and not perfectly. But you can't believe that this is the Son of God Himself speaking to you in His Word, and read it and listen to it, and it not do something to you. You might be aware of how little it's doing to you compared to how much you wish it was doing to you. But it's doing something to you. And that something that it's doing to you is the evidence that God is at work in you. And if God is at work in you, guess what? God doesn't leave unfinished projects. Paul says in Philippians that he's confident that God will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus the good work that he has begun in you. So listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus like he's God. Because he is God. Honor Jesus like he's God. Because he is God. Worship Jesus like he's God. Because he is God. Give to his word the same attention you give to God's word. Because Jesus is God. You do that. Everything else is not only going to be fine, it's going to be good, it's going to be grand, it's going to be glorious, because Jesus is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has secured for us life that is everlasting and full of joy. Let's pray.